Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. This is Philip Lance, your host for today's podcast. Today I'm interviewing Richard Tush about his book, Psychoanalytic Method in Motion, Controversies and Evolution in Clinical Theory and Practice, published in 2018 by Rutledge. Dr. Tush is a training and supervising analyst at the New Center for Psychoanalysis in Los Angeles and the Psychoanalytic Center of California. He is clinical professor of psychiatry at the David Geffen School of Medicine, UCLA. He has written and co-written books and chapters, and his papers appear in all three major psychoanalytic journals. He received the Carl A. Menninger Award Memorial Award for Psychoanalytic Writing, the Edith Sabshin Award for Teaching, and the Leo Rangel Essay Contest. And welcome to the program, Dr. Tush. Thank you very much, Philip. And uh, just in that introduction, I realized, okay, so the three major psychoanalytic journals, which I think I know must be two of them, the International Journal of Psychoanalysis, the Journal of the American Psychoanalytic Association, what would the third one be? And the Psychoanalytic Quarterly. Oh, okay. I was thinking, would it be the Contemporary Psychoanalysis? But so... So in terms of subscriptions, those are the three biggest, huh? Right, and psychoanalytic psychology is also very big. That that's the fourth one. When you when you add that to them, those are the four major psychoanalytic journals in the world. All right. Well, do you have a paper in that fourth one yet? <laughs> I'm trying. Okay. And then also, I noticed that this book, which I just read, um, by the way, today's uh, December twenty fourth, two thousand seventeen. But your book that we're reviewing today was published in 2018, which is, has not arrived yet. But how, how does that work? That, that, that's like the, the, uh, the year cars come out. They usually come out in September of the year before. So it was published about three weeks ago. So it's close enough to 2018 that they just give it the following year. All right. Well, we're, we're um, uh, ahead of the game here. And um, let's see. Well, let's start with sort of the question we always really begin with, which tell us about what led you to writing this book. All right. It's, a, it's an interesting story. I uh, sent a paper. I, I taught a class at the, at the PCC uh, in Los Angeles, uh, Psychoanalytic Center for California, uh, Cal- Psychoanalytic Center for California. Of California. Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, I uh, taught a class with David Brooks on the middle school and had kind of reacquainted myself in teaching that with the work of Fairbairn and, and other middle school theorists. Uh, and, and I wrote a paper about it uh, and sent it to the International, the uh, Journal of the International. And they wrote back and said, this isn't like what you usually submit. This looks more like a chapter to a book. And I thought, oh, uh, yeah, 
then I guess it is. And that's how the book started. Uh, I realized uh, I liked the paper and I realized it, it wasn't actually worthy of being in a journal. So I figured I'd written a number of other papers on technique uh, and published them. And I thought maybe I could write a bunch more and take them all together uh, as, uh, as a book on technique. And that's how it got started. It, it was this, this one class at the PCC and this one paper rejected by the uh, IJPA telling me that it sounds like the chapter of a book, and that gave me the idea. Yeah. Well, I think I think I was in that class, if it was you, the last you class you... You were. Yeah. You were. And I remember you mentioned a, a chapter, and so then when this few, you know, a week ago, when I saw a book had come out, I was, I thought, oh, I didn't know he was working on a book. Well, that came together pretty quickly. How long did it take you to write this? I, I was actually working on another book, which is going to come out in March, uh, oh. a, a clinical moments book that takes together a lot of little vignettes and has analysts around the world comment on them. But it, it took about a year. Uh-huh. The time I first started in on it, uh, I, as I said, I'd had a number of papers already uh, published that I would include, uh-huh. and then added to that another seven papers that I wrote in the process. Okay. You know, the last um, book I interviewed for this podcast was was um, Dana Berkstead. Breen's book, The Work of Psychoanalysis. And I remember telling her that I thought her book would be a good text for just kind of a basic textbook for candidates who are in training to learn about psychoanalysis. And then um, then I read your book and I, I had the same thought. Yeah. And yet they're very different books. Her book um, sticks very closely to it. Would we call it sort of the more classical tradition? It's very British object relations and then French she really integrates a lot of French psychoanalysis both mostly the non-lacanian sort of versions but some lacan too but it's um it's a difficult book for maybe some of us Americans your book feels much more american and accessible but what are your thoughts about that it makes sense you know i i i kind of have been trained in lots of different uh, traditions um, Jim, Jim Grostein liked to say that he changed his mind. If he changed his clothes as often as he changed his mind, he'd have a lot more friends. And, uh, you know, I, I following in, in the, in the footsteps of, uh, of Jim, you know, I really made an effort to try to know as much as I could about as many different analytic theories, uh, that are out there. And so, uh, certainly modern ego psychology is an important piece of of uh of uh of this book but it certainly extends why way beyond it because i became after training in modern ego psychology i became very familiar with uh the relational school and uh for one particular case i was uh having trouble with i um i went to albert mason and got uh, a lot of kleinian a lot more kleinian uh education about five years of supervision with him some time ago so so yeah probably the base is modern ego psychology but uh you know it it kind of covers all the ground i think uh, and it's eclectic in that way yeah so you don't really in this book take a a specific theoretical position or sort of even really a primary one do you you're it's very it looks at 
at method controversies and methods um, kind of across the board and kind of compares them somewhat. But may, maybe say a little more about what, what were you trying to do? What is the book tr- an eff- effort to do? Well, you know, it's I am most interested in technique. That's what I teach. That's what I write about. So, and for years I have, when I look back on what I've written, it, it's about the evolution of technique. Um, and the controversies, you know, a number of my papers are about, look, this group takes this position, this other group takes this position. Let's, let's look at, let's compare and contrast these different positions on technique. And, and so that's a lot of what my writing has been. Uh, in fact, one of uh, my more recent, uh, recently published journal articles talks about a pendulum swing and, and I, feel very strongly that that's how things evolve. Uh, you know, first there's one position taken, and usually it goes to an extreme. The pendulum swings to the opposite extreme. Now people are, are talking, some people are talking 180 degrees in a different direction, and then the pendulum swings back. And, and so I got very interested in how psychoanalytic, um, how the psychoanalytic method has been evolving through pendulum swings. <clears throat> First, countertransference is a no-no. Suddenly, now countertransference is the only thing there is we need to attend to. And if a case doesn't have lots of countertransference, and if that if there aren't countertransference enactments, then you don't have an analysis. Well, that seems like an extreme position, as did countertransference is a no-no. And if you have it, you ought to go back into analysis. So that's the swing in that particular uh, area, but there are many swings where people go from neutrality and abstinence to there's nothing worse than neutrality and abstinence. And how could you be? So, so uh, the book takes up a number of different uh, controversies and looks at how <clears throat> we've swung from one extreme to the other and now in ways are swinging back. Can you, off the top of your head, Think of a, what are a couple of some of the controversies that you cover in this book. Well, the ones I just mentioned are are two of the most common. Uh, um, the what I call the countertransference enactment movement, you know, is, is certainly uh, the central one that interests me. The fact that uh, there are there's a group of analysts who really believe strongly that only way we can know patients is not through empathy. I mean, this is kind of a, a reaction to the self-psychological moment. But empathy often involves, uh, is often contaminated by projection. Uh, that if one really wants to know a patient, uh, one finds a patient through the way in which the patient stimulates something in us something in us that is ours. So this is an extension of projective identification. When projective identification was first identified, it was said to be something foreign, something put into the analyst by the patient. And then uh, Gabbard talked about a hook, that you got to have something in the analyst upon which that trans- that projection is hung. And then we moved to a point where... Uh, um, uh, Ted Jacobs would talk about, well, this is how I responded. He started to write papers in the 80s where he went uh, beyond what Sandler did in the 70s in his uh, 
uh, role responsiveness paper. And in the 80s, Ted Jacobs was talking about is I'm not only going to tell you how I respond to the role. I'm going to tell you what it was in my background that got me to respond in this way. And so, you know, a lot of people came to believe in in, in the pendulum swing. And this is a paper I published in the quarterly of about two years ago, the psychoanalyst's way of being, that there was a group that came to believe that you can't know your countertransference the moment and only know it after the fact. This is uh, uh, something that, that a number of people had taken up. Uh, and, uh, and if you want to know something about the patient that comes closest to the truth, then the one thing you know beyond question, if you get beyond theory, is what you feel or what you're feeling as an analyst and that that's how you get to the patient. Well, you know, those who think that that is the now has become the royal road to the unconscious and that and that that becomes the soul and and uh, and best method of knowing patients. I think that's an extreme. And so, you know, I wrote up that paper, The Analyst's Way of Being, to, to try to counter it, say, look, you know, we're, we're getting a little too far afield. Same way with, with uh, abstinence and neutrality, you know, that, that there is something to be said for not merely freely self-disclosing, you know, in, in the name of creating a positive uh, therapeutic alliance. There are many kinds of controversies like that. Um, controversies around the analyst's use of authority. You know, some people came to feel skittish about interpreting that somehow, you know, how do we know, you know, what's right? That maybe the patient is the one who knows what's right. And, and I, I consider that to be another one of those controversies where a whole group of analysts uh, became anti-interpretation and that this is not good and this is just intellectual uh, uh, you know some of the Lacanians talking about uh, uh, being against understanding that understanding actually gets in the way you know uh, you know it's uh, and uh, even people in the relational school wrote about uh, the fallacy of understanding, uh, Edgar Levinson, for instance. So, you know, that's another controversy. You know, Freud said, make the unconscious conscious. Insight was the focus. And, and suddenly it's like, well, no, insight, not all it's cracked up to be. And the relational school got into the experience of it all. So, you know, there are multiple controversies. Those are three that come to mind. All right. Well, and then the first chapter begins with something that I was going to say maybe isn't controversial, but now I'm having even second thoughts about that. But um, free association, which um, it's a pretty big part, takes up a lot of real estate in the book. I think your appreciation and discussion of free association and and um, is being a real important sort of cornerstone of psychoanalysis and um what what are there controversies there and why why do you make it such a big piece of your book okay i i'm a strong believer that one of freud's major advances major discoveries was free association i don't think it can be uh uh I think you, you can't make enough out of it, no matter how much you emphasize it. It's essential. Uh, 
and and what's controversial about this first chapter is I not only talk about free association as a method to get to the patient's unconscious, I'm talking, I'm raising a question, uh, and the question is whether free association in and of itself beyond a way of collecting data might be therapeutic. In other words, you know, there's a, what I bring up is what I like to think of as a, a, a short condensed way of thinking of psychoanalysis. Tell the patient to free associate, notice how he can't, learn why he can't, uh, and you, and through learning why he can't free associate, help him to be able to free associate, and when he can free associate, then discharge him from treatment. So uh, the, the reason I, I condense psychoanalysis in that way is to help students realize, and, and patients too, that you know patients complain, well, I, I, I can't do this very well. And it's like, well, yeah, that's the problem. It is your difficulty free associating that is part and parcel of your psychopathology. So I'm raising a question, and this is a controversial question in this chapter, and that is, is that, yes, free association is a method to get a data, but might free association in and of itself be therapeutic? That's the controversial question. I, I believe it can be. I believe there's something therapeutic about lubricating the mechanisms of the mind so that they work in a more fluid way. And, and helping a patient free associate gets us data, but it also frees a patient up. And so that's the controversial question raised in this first chapter. So not only might it be therapeutic in and of itself, we could also then think of it as like an indicator for the analyst or the clinician to kind of assess where the patient is on the spectrum of psychological health and to the degree that they're having difficulty or not free associating and when. Oh, that would be actually no, it's an inter interesting question. So if you get somebody on the couch who has no difficulty at all free associating and they're just free associating right along for 50 minutes, are they really, <laughs> are they well? Um, I, I don't know. Well, I, I think if a person is, is free associating without blocks and defenses, you got to ask the question, why are they on the couch and why are they in analysis? Because, you know, the central, to, for, central to psychoanalytic theory is the idea of, of that there are hitches in the person's capacity to access stream of consciousness. And it's those very hitches that are indicative of defenses. And if you've got someone who's lying on the couch in analysis, seemingly without defenses, you know, totally free associating, something's not right. You know, I mean, I think even when you get to the end of analysis, there still are glitches in one's capacity to free associate, but much less. This one strikes me as quite convincing just because of my own personal experience with with these kind of difficulties. And although just as a devil's advocate, though, I'm, now I'm thinking, well, what about the patient who just talks and talks? I, I do have some patients who can just uh, roll along the whole hour and... Um, I, and talk 
and yet they have difficulties in their lives. And I'm wondering if, I haven't really thought about this, but there's probably ways that if I paid more attention to how they're free, free associating, would uh, yeah, now that I'm thinking of it, there's probably ways that even talking is defensive, obviously. And Right. I mean, you have to think of pseudo-free association. That is, you know, uh, if a patient creates a mesmerizing hypnotic state that gets the analyst into believing he is talking totally freely without a hitch, then that patient may be unconsciously, cleverly uh, distracting the analyst from noticing all kinds of things. Uh, you know, remember that uh, psychoanalysis, we don't just notice what the patient says. We also notice what the patient is carefully working to not say. Uh, and, and, you know, if the patient is moving along quite freely and capturing the analyst's attention, that he may so successfully capture the analyst's attention that it becomes hard for the analyst to see the man behind the curtain. He may become so wrapped up in this uh, portrayal of free association that probably would constitute pseudo-free association, you know? Okay, well, let's move on to chapter two, where you talk about how the theories that we hold as analysts, and there are the different psychoanalytic schools and theories, really is going to determine what we notice in the session, what we see in our, our patients. And since you've taught, um, you I guess you teach at two different institutes in L.A., um, uh, of somewhat different sort of s- schools, uh, what do you think students, candidates need to, which theories do we need to learn to, in order, order to be competent practitioners? Well, you know, I think there are a lot of very good theories, and uh, it is difficult to learn all of them to become uh, a polylinguist. So, you know... There's nothing wrong with getting immersed in a particular theory and working within that tradition. But you need to be aware that if you're going to try to communicate with analysts working from other traditions, you can't get into fistfights over what's real. Because, you know, the you know the parable of the five blind men and the elephant? You know that one where... Um, uh-huh. You know, they're all blind, and one feels the elephant's side and says, oh, the elephant's like a wall. And the other one who's feeling the elephant's leg says, no, the elephant's like a tree trunk. And the one who's feeling the elephant's tail says, no, it's like a rope. Well, who's right? Uh, I think this parable uh, uh, applies very well to psychoanalysis. People get into fights about, What's really going on with the patient? Well, you know, I, you know, I, uh, I have questions about reality, and and believe that one can construct alternate realities, uh, which may be equally valid and worthwhile to a patient in terms of helping him develop, but. But it depends on the perspective you're using. It depends on your theory. So, you know, if, you know, Jim Grotstein spoke many different theories, he could shift back and forth uh, in a multilingual sort of way 
you know. But I don't know that that's something that's realistic to expect of students to be masters of the three or four or five major psychoanalytic theories or more that are out there. So I, I can't advocate for the superiority of any given theory, I kind of tend to think there are certain patients for whom maybe a Kleinian approach would be better, others for whom maybe a relational approach would be better. But but other than that, uh, I think all of these theories uh, are ones that have been thought about, and, and they're all very rich, but they do have a way of operating in the background helping us select the data upon which we're going to build our narrative about the patient, which we're then going to present to the patient as our view of the patient. And we need to be circumspect and we need to be honest that this is a view, one view, not the view. We're not getting to the truth. You know, we're getting to a truth, and and as long as everyone keeps that in mind, we're going to have more peace within our camps. We, we don't want to be warring amongst ourselves. Psychoanalysis is a very small segment of the world, and it doesn't behoove us to be fighting amongst ourselves as to, uh, by saying, that's not analysis, because that's arrogant. So, and that, that I have in the beginning of the book, I have a strong feeling about that declaration. This is not analysis. Um, in some of the middle chapters of the book, you go into certain kinds of patients, including concrete, what we call concrete patients. And, and um, you, you talk about why it's so difficult to make transference interpretations to these kinds of patients. And it made me remember when um, I first got started um, and as a candidate in an institute where some of our instructors at our institute, just the be all and end all seems to be making transference interpretations. And so I dutifully, you know, an early patient who came in after a weekend started complaining about something. And, um, I made some interpretation about how he missed me over the weekend and it totally fell flat. He was aghast and thought it had nothing to do with me. And uh, he happens to be a very kind of a concrete kind of, guy so uh, and you t- I kind of really appreciated getting the liberty as you I think gave gave me as I read through your chapters about letting go of having to do so much transference interpretive work but can you talk a little bit about what you're doing in those chapters right so so no, you'd asked earlier, what are some of the pendulum swings? This is another one. Uh, Merton Gill from Chicago was known as a transference hound. Any, anything and any, everything that needs to be done in analysis has to be done through transference interpretations. So that's one pendulum swing. He took that extreme. And there are other people who came to realize that in order for a patient to realize the as-if quality of transference, and that is, is that, okay, it may seem as if the analyst is being this or feeling this or doing this for this reason. If you need abstract thinking to be able to appreciate 
the as if quality and to go, well, yeah, okay, maybe I'm interpreting it that way. Maybe it just seems as if it's that way. If you've got a concrete patient, they have a very hard time seeing the as if quality. Um, uh, uh, This is like a, a, a... the issue of psychic equivalence. So, uh, you know, if you're very concrete, you know, you may lose your ability to see that symbolism is at work and you may uh, confuse um, the symbol with what it's meant to symbolize, which is a terrible problem. And, And, you know, psychoanalysis has generally been predicated on working abstractly, working symbolically with patients and getting them to see, you know, uh, that, that they are, it's through the lens of interpretation and it is that lens that we're examining. So the lens of transference is as well, you have had past experiences and those past experiences then cause you to be out looking for certain kinds of data, data that is supportive of your basic theory about how people are and how people treat you. But that's a lens, and that's not reality. Concrete patients lose the capacity to see that what they're doing is interpreting. Once you have that as a problem, then interpreting transference is hard. You say to the patient, well, it seems to me that you feel I'm X. And the patient says, it's not that I feel you, you're X, you are X. Now where are you? So when you're dealing with concrete patients who are insistent on their, that their perceptions are, are, are real and, not, and there isn't an interpretive lens that is causing them to see things as they see things, then you have a whole different problem. Then you're dealing with a much more primitive kind of person. And it may take a long time to get them to begin to appreciate that the way they see the world is the way they see the world and not the way the world is. That's a concrete patient. Uh-huh. Do you think there's a lot of those out there? <laughs> there, there are some, and, and I think it's important for trained analysts and for, for uh, uh, psychoanalysts in training to quickly appreciate whether or not they're dealing with a patient who can think symbolically and abstractly or whether or not they're working with a concrete patient who may take a, a lot who may need a lot more time before they can arrive at a point of beginning to think symbolically, to begin to appreciate that, that, you know, what they think is so isn't necessarily so. So, yeah, I think it's, it's really important. Otherwise, you know, you're going to have a, an aborted analysis that could go on for years when, you know, you're, the analyst is talking at one level and the patient's operating in another. So that's what that chapter is. There's actually two chapters, and there's one about concrete patients, and the other chapter that's right next to it is about patients who are too scared to think, you know, and, and, and too scared because of a fear of recognizing otherness and separateness. And so they confuse their mind with the mind of the analyst. And, you know, not only do they think their interpretations of the analyst are veridical, actual, they 
they have a very hard time tolerating the sense of the analyst's otherness that the analyst may experience things somewhat differently, which for some patients is terrifying and, and makes it hard for patients to think on their own without somehow merging with the, the image of the analyst. So those are two chapters side by side about difficult kinds of patients. In chapter seven, I think it is, yeah, you, um, you talk, uh, take, take up the subject of enactments and it, you know, in my institute, uh, we hear a lot about countertransference because, um, that was, uh, part of the British school, which my institute's very associated with, but, but we very, I very rarely hear anybody talking about enactments at all. Um, so, um, which is, I know, it, which is interesting because it's such a big thing, and so some other sort of more contemporary American schools. Um, so maybe you could tell us a little bit what, what is maybe even an, an enactment for somebody who might not know, and what's the controversy? So, you know, um, an enactment is it, it's generated. It, it's a really it's a countertransference enactment. It it, it is generated, I believe. I mean, there are con- there there's a there are controversies as to why enactments, countertransference enactments, take place. Depends on your school of thought. The relational school sees them as dissociative phenomenon, and, and I and that that's what is operating. I, I believe they're part of projective identification. I think that that uh, that through projective identification. Uh, things get stirred up in the analyst, things in the analyst that is the analysts. In other words, that it's not some foreign body that is being put in the analyst by the patient, but that in interacting with the analyst, the, the patient creates states in the analyst that are, are feeling states. Hold on just one second. I'm sorry about that. So, so, um, so countertransference um, then becomes enacted, and and what I mean by that is is that instead of the countertransference rising up as something the analyst becomes consciously aware of, he checks acting on it and uses his reflective capacities to think, ah, why is it that I'm feeling this way? And then uses his countertransference awareness to work his way back to an understanding of the patient. In countertransference enactment, that doesn't take place. Uh, It isn't that you are aware of your countertransference first. It's that you are seized by your countertransference and start to act it out and act it out for the longest time. So in in the 1970s, uh, Sandler wrote his paper on role responsiveness. And and one of the cases he talks about is a, he, he finds himself uncharacteristically handing a patient tissues every time she cries. And as he does it, he thinks, why am I doing this? This isn't like me. But he doesn't know why. He never gets to what it is in him that is getting stimulated to cause him to do this. His, his 
solution was he just stopped doing it. So this is a countertransference enactment uh, where he was unconsciously assigned a role to hand her the Kleenex, and then he did it, didn't know why he was doing it, stopped doing it, and then the analysis seemed to deepen. Uh, you know, he found out that this was symbolically as if he were cleaning her bottom, uh, you know, and this had to do with the early experience. So the idea of a countertransference enactment is it's countertransference that seizes the analyst. He acts out. He does so often for an extended period of time. He either stops doing it and sees what happens when he stops doing it or better, he becomes, he, he does some self-reflective work, comes to realize what it is in him that's getting stimulated. And then through an awareness of, of, of what's going on, he uses that as a path back to the patient. So that's the essence of countertransference enactment. It's countertransference where the analyst isn't consciously aware of it for the longest time. It seizes control. It causes him to act. And only later is he able to regain uh, uh, the steering wheel after having lost control of himself for a period. Kind of a frightening idea, but it's an important idea because it helps us move away from condemning analysts who engage for a period, ideally for a period that doesn't go on forever, engage in an enactment. And we're trying to find ways to forgive people the humanness of getting swept up in an enactment so that people can start to develop skills to work with enactments in a uh, therapeutic fashion. So that's what it's about. Okay. Well, I, we could talk more about, I have <laughs> thoughts there, but I think I'll move on just because we're heading sort of towards, we have like 10 minutes left and I, I want to get to um, chapter eight where I get, let's see, is there, towards the end of the book, you deal, look specifically at some different schools, like the interpersonalist school. Um, there's a, some, and then a chapter on self-psychology where you talk a lot about empathy. I found this one really thought-provoking for me, and I, I wrote out a little question here, which, let's see, this chapter caused me to think a lot about my own practice and how I use empathy. I believe that much of my work with patients involves a way of listening and inquiring that enables me to get as close as possible to feeling what the patient is feeling about his or her experience. I find that when patients experience when a patient experiences this kind of profound attentiveness from me, they begin to think about and process their own experience in a way that may they may never have done before. And this leads to novel ways of symbolizing and representing their experience to themselves and to me. Isn't this therapeutic in itself? And I'm asking this rhetorically because I know that you make an argument that there needs to be more. Is there anything more needed from me as an analyst? Right. So, so um, there's a whole history to this. It, it really, it, it's about the self-psychological movement. When Kohut first introduced the, it first emphasized empathy and every analyst uses empathy, should use empathy, needs to use empathy, and an analysis without empathy isn't analysis. So empathy has got a central role in analysis, no question. However, 
you know, Kohut moved from treating a group of patients, narcissistic patients, to the self-psychological movement moving, as often happens in a pendulum swing. A, a technique is developed for treating a group of patients, and suddenly this is the way every patient should be treated. And this is, I have objections to this, you know, this kind of extremity, pendulum swing. Um, Kohut first said empathy is a tool for understanding the patient, and later went on to say empathy in and of itself is curative without the patient's needing to learn anything more about him or herself. That's where I have a problem. Uh, I think empathy is essential. Uh, one can't do without it. But whether empathy in and of itself is all one needs, it comes from a model, a developmental model, that says that uh, Patients who are lacking in the requisite development-promoting experiences in childhood, can you can make up for that if later in life, in analysis, the analyst gives the patient what the patient had been missing, and that's, and that's all the analyst needs to do to get development moving again. This is the developmental arrest model that some have. I don't think I believe that as a sole, uh, act, as sole therapeutic action. I, I think empathy is important; it's essential, but I don't believe it's curative in and of itself. Without helping the patient learn more about how their mind works, I think that's essential as well. So you need different ingredients. The other the other piece of this chapter is. You know, the early in the self-psychological movement, uh, empathic failure and the working with empathic failures was thought to be curative. And I'm raising questions as to how one defines an empathic failure and whether or not empathic failures are ever avoidable and whether they whether the working through of empathic failures is essential to uh, psychoanalytic cure as self-psychologists were thinking it was. so I and, and I think self-psychology has evolved from the time I first wrote this, this paper, you know, a, away from the centrality of the analysis of empathic failures. We understand them as, as being important, but I think we've moved away from thinking of them as, as the most important way in which patients get better. So that's what the chapter was about. It, it's, it's one of my earliest papers in the book, uh, and, and there has been tremendous evolution since that paper was written in the self-psychological mm -hmm. movement. Yeah. I'm just thinking here, sort of st sticking with my sort of original argument. If I'm really list, just if I'm just trying to be super empathic and understand my patient and as and somehow this empathic quality of mine enables them to begin um, thinking about things and, and trying to put into language things they've never put into language before because nobody has ever really tried to be so empathic to them. In a way, they're, they're <laughs> discovering something new. Something new is happening as they symbolize and put into language. And I, I guess I'm kind of being a devil's advocate here. Maybe I don't 
I need to do do anything else than just be super empathic. Well, well, but listening to what you're saying, Philip, you're saying that empathy creates a facilitating environment. Absolutely. And you use the word get things started, get the ball rolling. Yes, empathy is the fertile ground into which the seed gets planted. If you don't got fertile ground, you can try to plant seeds all you want. They're not going to grow. So I... I I agree with you entirely that it is a precondition for things to get rolling. But I, I think if you don't then capitalize on the creation of a facilitating environment and teach the patient something about how their mind works, then, then an analysis isn't complete. I think patients should come away from analysis with an experience and with some knowledge self-knowledge and an improved capacity to look at themselves that comes from knowledge about how their mind works. Empathy in and of itself, it isn't enough to get you to understand how your mind works. It gets the ball rolling. Essential to get the ball rolling. A facilitating environment is Winnicott called it. But I don't think in and of itself it is all one need do. That we have a lot more to, there's other things we have to author, offer our patients above and beyond empathy. Yeah. Once, once you get the ball rolling and empathy creates a facilitating environment, then there's a lot the patient will be open to learning about, about themselves. Okay. And then yeah. chapter 10 is about psychodynamic psychotherapy as opposed to psychoanalysis. And you be, you began, I was interested in, the, I think the first sentence in that chapter says that, that many institutes in the United States have begun to teach psychodynamic psychotherapy. And at first I thought, oh, really? And then I, I, I guess you're talking about like, the, they call them the PPP programs. Yeah. Okay. That's right. That's right. I, I didn't know that was the case when I was writing the article. I actually called the American Psychoanalytic and I asked them, gee, how many of our institutes are, is everyone doing this? It turns out certainly at the American Psychoanalytic Association, all the institutes associated with, uh, with that organization, they all have psychodynamic psychotherapy uh, classes. I, I didn't know that at the time I wrote this article. And, and once I realized that everyone was on the bandwagon doing a PPP, then I thought it would be useful to write a chapter about how you teach students to think like an analyst. And that's, and that's what that chapter is about, is learning, teaching and learning how to think like an analyst and, and what's required. And, and uh, you know, I break it up into what are the duties and responsibilities of patients and what are the duties and responsibilities of the analyst and kind of looking sequentially at, at, at what each um, – of the two parties needs to bring to the table uh, in order for some kind of psychodynamic process to take place. Okay. Well, in, in, in two minutes or less, is there anything else I should have asked or that you want us to know about the book? Well, obviously I'm very hopeful that this will be read and will sell, but more importantly, as a writer, you know, that, that it, will help people step back and look at the big picture of how method, 
the psychoanalytic method has been evolving over time. Uh, every so often, it's useful to, to step back and look at the forest from the trees to get the big picture and say, well, what, you know, how has this happened? You know, how have we gotten to this point and, and where are we going from here? Uh, in that way, the, the book is a bit historic and also a bit predictive because it, it, it not only uh, demonstrates how things have evolved over time, it, it gives you a sense of, uh, in terms of how controversies are being talked about, it gives you a sense of, of you know, the sides, the different arguments, so you can step back and hearing each side of the argument, you can make up your own mind as to where you yourself are in in the midst of that controversy looking at the two uh extremes so uh you know i of course would would love it if this helped clarify things about the method in people's minds and also most importantly to try to move people away from uh, being parochial, uh, people who, you know, believe in the superiority of their analytic method and theory and, and are therefore discounting of anyone who works in a different tradition. I think that's awful for our field. We, we need to be unified. We are small. The forces against people who believe in the unconscious are strong. They were strong when Freud wrote. They remain strong. They may even be stronger now, given you know, the political environment and, and the concreteness of our leaders today. Uh, you know, we, we have to be united, you know, uh, against those that are terrified by what we have to say about unconscious forces and the power of unconscious forces. You know, there is resistance to that idea and if we're not united as a field uh, behind certain basic shared principles, which we do have, although we sometimes act like we don't, if we don't get united, then then we're in trouble. So that's, that's, I think, what I'd love this book to be able to do is to help people appreciate the legitimacy of our various theoretical traditions that are all rich and are all contributing uh, to this powerful field. Well, thank you very much for writing this book, which I think um, is going to be very helpful to to students and to anybody interested in in psychoanalysis. And it, it came just in time for Christmas, uh, so um, we've been um, interviewing Richard Tush about his book, Psychoanalytic Method in Motion: Controversies and Evolution in Clinical Theory and Practice. Um, check out our website and feel free to email me with your comments and questions. Thanks for listening.